Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, we have the modeler's modeler, the modeler who got things more accurate than most, Yu Yang Gu. Yu Yang Gu has an undergraduate degree from MIT, and he was not in epidemiology prior to this pandemic, but he is now, and he's got a lot to say on this pandemic. You won't want to miss this discussion. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon and get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcasts that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined via Zoom by Yu Yang Gu. Mr. Gu is is the modeler. He is the modeler, and you may know him from Twitter uh, and other places. I mean, he is the person who's modeled COVID19projections.com. He's the person who, you know, I think by many accounts is the most accurate COVID projector. COVID forecaster, COVID modeler. We can see what those words actually mean. Um, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, it's great, great to be here. Uh, and I, I'm really looking forward to to chatting with you. Uh, I've seen a lot of your 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 posts on Twitter, and uh, definitely a lot of it resonates with me. So I'm you know excited to to have a discussion here today. I look forward to it. And you've listened to some episodes. You've listened to uh, Francois or people people like him. Uh, maybe just like a snippet or something. Okay. I, I think I didn't get the chance to. To fully delve Go through in. the whole thing. But, uh. <laughs> so I wonder if we might start in the beginning. Um, I guess, um, you know, I, I read this recent profile about you. It turns out you're 27 years old. You're a young man. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Trust me, it's all it's all downhill from there. Uh, <laughs> but um, but um, you're somebody who has basically taken advantage of these publicly available data sets and applied a different algorithm, machine learning uh, algorithm. Maybe you can talk about what your algorithm is, but you've made a number of models make predictions throughout the course of COVID-19. One of the differences between your models and other models is your models are much closer to what actually happens than other models. So I wonder if we might go back to the beginning. It's March, it's early March. People don't know what to make of COVID-19 and Imperial College London drops the bomb of, you know, potentially one to two million deaths. Um, and I think it was something like 1 million deaths if you did everything humanly possible and 2 million deaths if you didn't do anything at all. Um, you came in then and you started doing your modeling. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about what were you doing in March um, and and what did you think about in those moments? Yeah, so uh, I think March last year, it seemed like such a long time ago now. But uh, yeah, back in March, uh, I think we right, it was an unfortunate time and we basically had a nationwide lockdown. And I, along with I'm sure many other people were just anxious about what's going to happen in the future. 
uh, right? So I, I wanted to know, right? Um, and many others wanted to know, right? When would this be over? Yes. So I think uh, I saw kind of I was just googling kind of existing models at the time, and, and it was just a huge range. Right? It can be anywhere from I don't know why the people are saying like sixty thousand deaths uh, by end of summer to right, the Imperial model who said right, two million deaths if we do nothing. <laughs> yeah. And so that, you know, that to me doesn't seem right. <laughs> is, uh, so I just, right, like I have a background in statistical modeling. So I just had some free time at the time. And so I just said, you know, why not? Let me just code up this model really quickly and, uh, and, and see what, what, what that gives me. And, uh, and so I, you know, I just took a couple of days to, to put it together and then I, well, why not just put it on a website and let people, and let people see it? So that's kind of how I got started. And I, I didn't expect it to <laughs> you know, be where I am now, but uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that. You make a lot of models. Okay, so so let me so tell us a little bit of how how your what's going on under the hood. So your model is basically predicting um, uh, the number of people infected, and I believe. You also pre you also have had predictions of the number of people who will die. I mean, you predicted these different things. Um, what are the inputs that go into your model? I mean, I guess you know um, what are those inputs you're putting in? Um, and my understanding is you're using AI or machine learning to actually project into the future. And so it might be a little bit of a black box exactly how they're weighing the different coefficients. But um, you're not making sort of unlike these other models that, that make sort of a simplistic world assumption that they're susceptible people and infected people um, and there's a certain rate with which they come into contact with each other, you're not doing that kind of modeling. You're basically putting in all these variables um, that you've ascertained, like I guess the number of people who live in a county or you can tell me what the, the variables you're putting in um, and, uh, and, and AI is predicting what it will be at X point of time in the future. Is that right? Uh, yeah, no, more or less. This is a good high level overview. Okay. Uh, so, right. So I, what I do is, uh, so I had a model that forecasted deaths. Uh, that was the main, main goal, uh, from April okay. to November. And you pick uh, deaths and, because it's more stable than cases when you have a changing, um, testing strategy. Yeah. So, so the output, I chose deaths because that's what people most cared about mm. at the time is okay. how many people would die. Okay. And then, of course, when looking to kind of what type of data, what what sources should I use to feed into the model yeah. to be able to predict that, I looked at a lot of different sources. So like cases, testing, right, hospitalizations, of course, deaths, mobility, also. So and and what I found is that all of the data, all the data is noisy. They're all extremely noisy, and but deaths is the least noisy. Mm -hmm. uh and and so i chose i ended up choosing only to use deaths to forecast future deaths um because i think there's just too many degrees of freedom that that you have to basically take additional time to account for if you start adding like cases or testing and things like that it, it's it's just not a consistent reliable uh metric especially because all the different states have different reporting standards but at least for deaths yes uh it's a it's it's more consistent yes and then i what i do is i i kind of build this uh what, what we call an scir model but it's kind of uh rather than kind of uh oh, you did a build such a continuous model, okay. like dif differential equation based model that you see in epidemiology i, I use kind of a more uh state machine discrete 
uh, model. Okay. So that's kind of more common in computer science, okay. uh, but that's what I'm familiar with. So that's what I built. And then I just had kind of a machine learning, learning layer on top to learn the parameters into this SCIR model. I see. Um, oh, so you did so, so rather than kind of using, right, like solving for differential equations, I just, uh, you know, let, let the, let this, this, uh, machine learning tool. I mean, it's just basic grid search. So it's not, it's nothing super complicated. I know like people make it sound like this. It's this, this super complex algorithm, but really it's just, I try all the different parameters and see which one fits the data the best. And I can use those parameters to forecast the future. I see. Uh, and, and, it, and of course, right, it ended up working pretty well. But uh, in, tell me in the original data set, like how many variables are in there? Six, seven or hundred or 200, probably a hundred, something like that. 50, hundred. Uh, what do you mean by variables? I guess like, I mean, in the original data set that you're making the forecast from, um, mm -hmm. you were including in there, are you using any population parameters, the number of people in the county, or you're using any data? Oh, yeah, no, no. It's strictly um, just the number of deaths, one, yeah? Yeah, and I guess the, so I was doing forecasts for kind of each state in okay. over 70 countries. Uh, so I just use population. Population, uh, okay. That's it, yeah. So population um, and then the number of dates to date. Death, sorry, the number of deaths to number date. Number of deaths. Death uh, to yeah, date. Number of daily deaths. And then what uh, else? And, and that's it. That's it? Yeah. That's okay. It. I see. I mean, if you think about it, right? Like yes. if, I'm doing, if I'm doing forecasting for 50 states and also 70 countries, each right like each country is going to have different sets of data and and, and oh, okay. so it's, but, it's really difficult to kind of having to, to yes kind of i see build all, all of that information okay. so but deaths is kind of the only reliable okay wait so so population yeah. is one column the next column is the deaths every, by every single day though you're putting in the day that every yeah, single day is yeah. a column okay right. Right, right, right okay 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 so i'm seeing it so so i guess it's based on how much follow-up there is maybe and and but you you but surely um you know the number of deaths that happened 45 days ago is not weighted as heavily as the number of de deaths that happened two days ago where does that come into the model yeah so so That's, that 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 part is the kind of the tuning so you could like yeah. pick the weights uh for the different days i actually i spent a, a lot of time figuring out the right combination of, of weight you could do like an exponential yes moving average right where you weigh the past right. days less than the future days but it turned out that the, the what i found works the best is weighing each day equally really oh okay okay yeah. interesting uh, and it, it because it, it turns out that right like when you have exponential curves then when you weigh the 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 tail heavily the tail it's all gonna heavily, explode then it just yeah. ends up being fitting to the last uh, week yeah yeah and it doesn't yeah. take it into account right yeah, yeah. all Fair, the previous yeah, yeah. days yeah yeah i can see that okay. and, and so yeah yeah so i mean it's a lot of it, it was a lot of tuning but uh it, there was a lot of concern about kind of overfitting because it, right if, if you're if you if you just care about right like maximizing kind of this in sample error, then you'd want to just weigh the end dates more because right you can basically fit the curve. Yes, but that doesn't work out of sample. Yes, uh, so I think that's a problem probably a lot of other models face, and maybe they didn't really quite get the get the get the kind of uh, validation correct. Um, but for me, I, I you know it took me I spent kind of a couple of weeks trying to tune this. Tune this these these weights, and it turned out that at the end I was like, "Well, 
just weigh everything equally. And- I see. When you, but when, when you use <laughs> yeah. the word tuning, um, somebody listening might wonder, like, are you trying to optimize a parameter like R squared? You're not trying to optimize a parameter because if you were trying to optimize R squared, you might weigh more heavily the more recent days. Um, what do you, when you take tuning, what are you tuning it to? You're tuning it to the past or you're tuning it to what future days come? Um, uh, yeah, so I, so that, yeah, it's a good question. So, uh, I basically have kind of this, like, uh, set aside this validation period. Okay. I see. Uh, so yes. I have, you have like, a derivation a validation. Period. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. so I, I tune, right. The, the yes. parameters such, and then check the results, which is, uh, I think I use uh, mean absolute error okay. or mean squared error for yes. the for the validation test set on on the on the deaths. Right. And then of course, but then if you if you keep tuning, you're gonna overfit. Yeah, on exactly. The Correct. Set. Yes. So I basically you know pick the country, say Italy, and I tune around that, and then I I, I basically have a validation set for the validation. Uh-huh. So I and look oh let's look at after I tuned it, I look at Spain. Yes, gotcha. Right. right. Did, did it do better in yes. Spain? If not, then I probably overfit. Yes. Uh, and then if it did well in Spain, let's let's check France. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Or That's or New York. Yes. Or Jersey. So uh, so doing it that way, I think. Uh, what what ended up kind of working working out? Maybe I'm going to try to explain this to the listener who may not be familiar with this. But I guess um, what 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 Yu Yang is doing, and tell me if you agree with my characterization of what you're doing, is one of the classic problems in data analysis is if you take a collection of data and you try to explain why do these variables fall the way they fell in this collection of data, you can with enough. Um, if your if your model is allowed to explore enough factors, you can almost always fit some line that explains all the data perfectly. But the reason it's overfit is it's using um, arbitrary and idiosyncratic differences in the data to explain this line, and it's not actually telling you something true about biology about the real world. And the first proof of that is if you go to a different data set, like the same country two weeks later, or a different country a week later, or a different country a week earlier, and you applied that equation that you you think will explain where deaths will fall in that new data set, it will be wildly in error. And so the classic way to overcome this from sort of um, a methods point of view is you you break up your data set into smaller pieces. So if you have one country, you break it into two pieces, you derive your equation, you derive your model in one set, and you test to see how well it fits the separate set of data you've kept aside. Overfitting means, I guess, idiosyncratic differences in data uh, are used to create a really nice model that that applies very poorly in the next data set. And I guess what you're doing is you're saying you're you're actually testing this in a validate in a sorry classically we call this a derivation cohort where you build your model and you have several validation cohorts that same country in the future, a different country in the past, a different country in the future. And the more different validation cohorts you're applying it in, you're really trying to get at what are the what are the true relationships in the data versus what's the noise that the equation might be fitting um, and, and give you the false sense that you're predicting um, what's happening, even though you're just sort of taking advantage of idiosyncrasies in the data set. Okay, is that a fair characterization of this process or how would you put it? Yeah, yeah, no, you uh, you explained it better than uh, I could myself. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think right, that the issue with, I think, what a lot of papers you see in academia is that, right, like that doesn't, that doesn't happen. To, right? You don't need to validate because you <laughs> I know, publish what, yeah. what you see, right? Like you tune it so that it maximizes the error in, in, in your in your data set and then you say, I'm done. <laughs> right? you know, you that's so, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I always tell people, 
um, you know, so many projects that I've been asked for my opinion on. And I'm like, if you really want to prove this and, and, and they played it. And so the other thing I want to say is just a side point is sometimes you have a small data set and you play around in your own data set so much. There's no more validation part left in your data set. You've you've looked at this data set every which way you need a totally different data set to try to validate some of these things. Um, you're lucky, I guess, with COVID-19, you have so many countries that you can always find a data set you've never played with before um, to test it in there. Um, but I, I think this is a problem. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think you're getting at something. Okay, so all right, I want to ask you some questions now. Okay, so you you do all this. Your predictions are very good um, compared to other people. Um, compared to, I mean, we should put in context. Like one of the people you're competing against is University of Washington. They have five hundred million dollar from the Gates Foundation for uh, what IHME to do this kind of modeling. Uh, you probably don't have five hundred million dollars. Fair to say? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, I but yet, but your model is better than IHME. Okay, one question. I've heard you say this kind of in passing, and I want to pick your brain on this. Um, when we initially went into lockdown, I was under the impression, it seems like you were under the impression, that the rationale for that was, quote, flatten the curve. The idea that we are going to try to minimize the single day influx of patients into the hospital system so that at no one point in time we overwhelm the hospital system. Um, my understanding of that wasn't that we were going to stay in sort of a perpetual lockdown situation until um, we uh, were able to eliminate the, vex the virus altogether. Uh, but somewhere along the way, that, that did change. Um, you, you, do you feel as if that changed as well? Um, how do you think about this? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I've, right, in the very beginning, I've, I knew nothing about infectious diseases and knew, right, knew nothing about the virus. And so, uh, I just, right, listened to what kind of the, the public health experts and, and the scientists were saying, which, which was, right, we gotta, we're locking down in order to flatten the curve. Right? And, and I think at the point, at the time, people made it, made, were very explicit in pointing out that we're not trying to eliminate the disease. But we're simply trying to, uh, you know, make sure that we don't overwhelm our healthcare systems, which actually, it, funnily enough, I thought that was odd because I personally at the time wanted to just wait, why don't we just eliminate the, the virus, right? Look at, look at China, right? right? Or look at, you right, know, kind of, uh, so, so, you know, so somehow since in the, in the months since then that, seem to have changed and and now there's this idea that we have to seem to like completely eliminate the virus for things to kind of go back to normal and, and so not really sure how, where or how that changed but i guess i guess it did and uh, that you know that's that's just something that is interesting <laughs> yeah i think it's quite interesting i i mean I, I feel like it happened right around that time that guy wrote that medium article the hammer and the dance or whatever the sickle and the sword or whatever the hell it was uh that's where i felt like people who've been in this business for many years changed their tune uh which i thought was quite crazy Okay, I want to ask you about two things you recently posted on um, the mass, the CDC mask mandate, and then the the school closure data. I wonder, maybe we'll do which one do you want to do first. I wonder if you might explain like what's going on here. The CDCs are do doing the mask. Let's do the mask. Okay, was, yeah. yeah. Okay, take us through this, um, or maybe I'll just frame it by saying um, 
the CDC did some study, which this type of study, by the way, for, for the record, I, I want the record to state this is considered one of the lowest forms of evidence in, uh, uh, in medicine. But basically, they looked at um, counties in Kansas with the mask mandate and counties in Kansas without a mask mandate. And they argued what exactly? And then you did some secondary analysis and you found something different. So take us through this. Uh, yeah, no, I think like the CDC in November or December released a study that looked at Kansas counties and the mask mandates uh, back in, I think, July. Uh, and it did, they just basically looked at only like a, a, month, a one month period, uh, you know, after the mask mandate or six week period and, and said, hey, look, like, you know, masks, uh, counties in, uh, <laughs> with the mask mandate had a lower uh, kind of infection rate than uh, counties without a mask mandate. And so therefore it seems like mass, uh, mass mandates work. And I think that was their conclusion. And uh-huh. what I did was like, okay, well, let's see what happened in the, in the weeks and months after, uh, uh the mass mandate and there, they, it didn't matter whether counties had a mass mandate or not. The, the infection rate spiked, uh, in uh, September and October. Uh, kind of pretty much arm in arm. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, you know, the, this conclusion that somehow mass mandates can, is, is effective at reducing spread. I'm not saying that they're not effective. Right. No, right. I'm just yeah. saying that the data doesn't support that. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly effective. I mean, um, so. I guess when I saw your figure, it was like, I don't know. It's like a single figure when the moment somebody looks at this figure, and I'm going to tell people, it's on December 16th on uh, on Yu Yang uh, Gu at Yu Yang Gu on Twitter. Um, the moment you see the figure, you're like, oh my gosh. Um, because, I mean, not only is the time period they report, there's a difference, but the future time period, there's no difference, as you note, and the actual rates at which the infection's occurring is like way, way higher. It just explodes in every place. Fair to say. Yeah, uh, and, and I guess it is a little bit odd because right the, the, at the time that the, the paper was published, I think it was like November mm-hmm. or December. This was already right, like oh, we already know they already that knew it. They exploded, right? Uh, oh. But they still right, they still chose to publish it, and then and of course we had people right citing that paper as uh, <laughs> to to say that hey, like mask mandates work, we should implement mass mandates um so that, you know that was just i think uh uh unfortunate i mean uh, I, I just make one point here before we talk about the other example um i actually believe and this may sound kind of surprising but i believe um you're never going to find truth on some issues from these types of studies so for instance in this case people have a strong belief both sides. I mean, there's some people out there's a faction of people who don't believe they work. And there's a lot of people who believe, I think there are a lot of, some, a lot of people in the middle who believe it might work, but have a modest effect size. And there are a lot of people who believe it's an art, they ardently believe in this. And when you have such an environment and you have basically near infinity data sets, I mean, the number of data sets here are how many states, how many counties, how many different mask mandates they did had it or didn't have it. I mean, maybe not infinity, but you know, we're talking about maybe 10,000 data sets. Um, globally, I mean, you can pick the data set you look at and you can pick the time period. I mean, you can, you have total flexibility on the time period you look at, um, the data set you look at, um, how you define quote mask mandate. Like if there's a county where they kind of recommended it, but they didn't always enforce it, which bucket do you 
put it in. You give them all there's researchers, all this analytical flexibility. You're not going to find, you're going to find whatever you want to find. I mean, you can go in some of these data sets, you'll find it works. You go to other data sets, you find it doesn't work. I mean, I think the only ways around that are like total pre-registration of the analytical plan, where you're going and where you're looking and why you chose that to look at. Um, even then I have my doubts. And, and that is actually why, you know, there are a few of us who thought you could actually do some cluster randomized trials and you'd answer that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, and and you brought, you brought it up as well, right? That there's this heavily selection bias and all this, right? None of this is random. Uh, you know, the, the selection of counties that received a mass mandate, not mass mandate, completely not random, right? The, the places that got a mass mandate <laughs> they take it tend seriously. to be cities yeah, and they yeah. tend to be, right, more yeah. uh, left-leaning yeah. who, who, you know, there will be higher compliance with the mass mandate anyways. Yes. And also places that implement mass mandates probably do so because there's already have been a large surge in cases. Yes. And yes. so when there's already a large surge of cases, then if you look at what happened six weeks later, of course, there's a high probability that uh, cases will go down yes. versus places without a mass mandate. Well, yes. they didn't implement a mass mandate because there's no high prevalence in those counties. So in six weeks, of course, it's much likely that prevalence will go up. So it, it, there's just really no way whatsoever to really kind of deduce anything from just kind of uh, this, this, these, uh, you know, a few data points. Uh, but of course, uh, because it is a CDC, I think a lot of people uh, paid, paid a lot of attention to it. Yeah, it took me 10 years in medicine to, to learn what you just said. So, so thanks for... Thanks for <laughs> for coming to the conclusion years before I did. Uh, okay, now I wonder if you might talk about um, what was the uh, the 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 new one uh, that was really uh, university. Yes, county. Yes, university county. Yeah, talk us through university counties. I'm trying to find. Yeah, so I mean, like, so CDC report from January. Okay, here, here's what you're saying. Yeah, so like two months later, they released the report saying that they looked at. uh, kind of school reopenings or more more specifically kind of college and university reopenings uh, from kind of July through uh, August. And they, you know, they compared counties, uh, university counties with in-person instruction versus uh, remote instruction. And so they, again, they only look at the three weeks before and after. And so they concluded, oh, like, you know, colleges, university, counties with in-person instruction saw a rise in cases uh, in the three weeks uh, after the reopening yeah. versus uh, you know, university counties with remote instruction. And so therefore they conclude that, uh, you know, it's, you know, we have to be careful about uh, reopening schools for in-person. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was their conclusion. And so, of course, I thought, you know, why not? Let's look at what happened in the in the six months after the reopening, rather than just the three weeks after. Yeah. And it, it turned out that uh, the 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 counties with in person instruction actually ended up with a much lower peak in the fall than counties with remote instruction. Uh, so basically, the idea that. Uh, you know, that in-person instruction somehow leads to higher prevalence in the community uh, is, is not supported uh, by the data, uh, at least kind of over the, the long run. 
Mm. Uh, so that's kind of the the high level conclusion there. So basically, pretty much the same thing as the mass study, right? You you find some correlation in like the 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 near term, right? What happens right after, and then but if you actually look at the the long term, uh, you know that correlation basically goes goes away. That's fascinating. Um, boy, that's that's like, I mean, the policy implications of this are are tremendous. I mean, this is literally used to make these decisions, these kinds of things. Um, and, and, and the, and the other challenge is like your, your, um, your point about it, um, which is incredible, which is, I mean, just overwhelmingly persuasive and right. Um, it's just not going to be known by as many people as the original study, because that study got this particular, the school reopening counties. I mean, that got so much media coverage. It wasn't, it's not even close. Yeah, and then people right then again because it's the CDC, they pointed out at the article and say, "Hey, look, like the CDC concluded that uh, uh, reopening schools leads to a spike in cases, so therefore we should not reopen schools." Yeah, um, <laughs> and that you know that that that's just again a very unfortunate because they also chose not to look at deaths, and uh, I don't know if that's uh, because they didn't have time or they just intentionally did not include it. But if you actually look at that, there is no difference. Uh, there's no kind of increase in deaths uh, for for you know university counties with with in in person instruction. Instruction. Uh, so right. So if I so in the, the places that so so I mean one right. of the pop, the thoughts there is that it could be an artifact of like when they're running the schools they test like crazy. I mean the testing goes right, through right. The, right. Exactly. That's what I was yes. about to say. No, oh, sure, sure, yeah. Sure, like, sorry. When you open schools, these a lot of these schools probably have right a, a very strict set of guidelines that you need to in order to reopen, and and they do a massive amount of testing. So, for example, I think like University of Illinois, right? We've heard at one point they were doing like well, like five or ten percent of the national uh, tests, yeah, right. And so, of course, yeah. when you test the entire campus, right, a couple times a week. Uh, you're going to find a lot of cases <laughs> yeah. that, you know, counties that don't do yeah. these types of testing. Uh, and so just because there's more more cases, right, doesn't mean that uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't automatically mean that, you know, this is something to, a problem to, that we to be to a concern make. about, right? right? And it, it seemed like in a lot of these cases, uh, the, the, the incidents and, and the outbreaks are contained in, in the school itself rather than kind of spreading outwards uh, to the rest of the community. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it, right. So, I mean, it's just like we, we definitely need a lot more data and evidence before we can kind of make these types of conclusions that all school reopenings uh, or college reopenings kind of uh, lead to higher incidents in the community or higher deaths or anything like that. And I just think just kind of taking a few uh, data points and, and looking at the three weeks after doesn't doesn't do it justice. Doesn't cut it. You know, related to what you're saying, I always tell people that for some of these municipalities where they say schools will close when some percentage of testing is positive, we're going to close it. And if it's some percentage is uh, below that, we're going to keep it open. And it's always on the cusp. And, you know, the parents aren't getting angry. Uh, I tell them that you want to all you do is you say we're 100 parents who feel well, you go get tested. Boom, you bring that percentage down. You get all the well people, you know, and you go get tested and you can drop that. So if they want to use a metric that I mean, I still will debate it. 
whether or not it's reasonable, but at least cases per 100,000 is, is more objective than the percent of tests that come back positive. It's very contingent on whom you're testing. Um, and, but I, I also think that with the school's question, we do have regression analysis that shows there's no link between cases per 100,000. Anyway, that's another story. That's another story. Um, okay, here's my question for you. Um, on January 24th, the New York Times ran this model, and I think you know what I'm talking about because I've been complaining about it a great deal online. Um, this is a model that said, you know, now the vaccinations are started, it said, you know, don't let up your guard, like even though you're right, don't let up your guard, because even if you vaccinate at this pace we're vaccinating, we're going to get so many more cases that go into, you know, fe- all through February and into March, there'll be rising cases and they'll plummet in April. And if you do let down your guard, well, then it's just going to be rising cases is rising cases, even in April, and then it's going to plummet. And then, of course, what actually happened is the cases just just plummeted. I wonder if you, I don't know, one, did you see it coming? Did you think the models were wrong? Two, um, what are your, you know, I guess, any thoughts you have on this this recent this recent question of the plummeting cases? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I took a step back from kind of like doing heavy forecasting of the future uh back in november so now right, i've been just focusing on kind of estimating true infections in every county and every state uh and also kind of uh, forecasting kind of vaccinations and, and things like that but uh i did have kind of right uh, se- since december and uh, a, a kind of uh crude projection about kind of infections uh in in the us and i've had infections kind of going down from december uh onwards all the way till march uh and that hasn't really changed uh in the in the past few weeks mm-hmm. uh and I, I mean of course i think uh real cases and infections have fallen a little bit steeper than what right i was projecting but i mean o- overall i mean it, it, if you just look at the data i mean there there's just no reason to think that we will have another spike uh kind of in you know in february uh or january or anything like that I mean, all the all the data points to right these are just uh there are going to be waves of these infections and it doesn't really seem to matter what what you uh what you do i mean of course uh there is you know, of course restrictions and interventions can kind of play a minor role but uh, overall kind of in terms of like the shape of the pandemic it's it's uh seems to be uh you know more or less kind of uh are you know baked in uh, rather than kind of able to, to be controlled. So, um, what makes you, what makes you say, I mean, I guess, um, what you're saying speaks to my intuition, which is that if one, I mean, you know, I've written an article where I go through all the different factors that can explain the spread, but one is, you know, there's sort of a natural tempo to these things. They have a natural periodicity. And the other thing is there's some things that are outside of control and they're stochastic and and chaotic and random. Um, but what makes you say that you think that, um, you know, and of course, the narrative on Twitter is, of course, that everything we're doing is the thing that's responsible for it going up. We're bad people. And if it goes down, we're good people. You know, they they, they put it all, they they almost anthropomorphize everything in terms of that there's always, you know, the action of some agent. Um, what makes you what makes you say that you think some of this is outside our control? Uh, yeah, I mean, the easiest is just right, like, if 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 right, the, we take this hypothesis that you know you can, there's actions and interventions that you can take to to right control this the virus and its spread, then you would be able to create a model, right, that would be able to accurately predict the spread given <laughs> the that you take. Yeah, and 
I I don't see a I don't see a model that did that. <laughs> I, I still haven't seen it. Yeah. Right. Uh, the easiest example is you look at Florida and California. Right. right? Back in back in September, you know, uh, DeSantis was like, "We're going to drop all restrictions." Yeah. And uh, you know, of course, uh, that was a little bold, right? Even <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. the narrative at the time was, "Oh, okay, so now Florida is going to have a, a dramatic wave, uh, a, a tremendous surge because they did that." Uh, but of course, California kept everything right, kind of uh very restrictive i remember uh yes, very, <laughs> very oh yeah it's very difficult even for outdoor dining they, yes. they, they closed that down and case right and we saw a huge surge in california right it was right. one of the worst outbreaks uh in the country who right did anyone <laughs> uh predict that i right like no right like so um so so the easiest way to 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 kind of reach the conclusion, right, is if this was possible, then you would see, uh, right, some kind of model or predict prediction that would be able to to deduce this behavior, right, this pattern. Right. But we didn't see exactly. That. So you know, there has to be something else at play, not just interventions or restrictions. Uh, so that's kind of how I got came to that conclusion. My, that's a very good point. So uh, my question for you is, I guess two. I have two last questions before we go. The last one's going to be on herd immunity, but the first, the, the penultimate question is, why? Why did all the other modelers get it so wrong? Like, why? Why do you think? I mean, I, I also want to say just uh, just a caveat to the listeners. Like, I believe that if you underestimate, you are penalized more socially than if you overestimate. And if you overestimate a hundred times, not a hundred times, but ten times more, there seems to be very little social penalty for that. Which there's some research about our moral intuitions there but whether you underestimate overestimate it don't matter a lot of these people are just way off way off why do you think they're so off um how why are they so off why are you so much better than them what's the what's the difference uh i mean well first of all i, I mean i've been i've been very off too okay. <laughs> so it wasn't right like reason wasn't that like my models has been perfect throughout this whole time right? i've learned a lot from from the other modelers as well uh so so right kind of we we all kind of work together and and sort of kind of sharing our ideas and things uh but i guess what makes i think my approach a little unique is right because i i don't come from an infectious disease background so i have kind of zero priors about what a virus can and cannot do i i only focus on my approach is only right like look at the data that's my only focus was to kind of follow the data as it is. Uh, so I didn't have any kind of preconceived notions or biases that can kind of cloud my judgment about what, what, you know, what can happen. They would call uh, that knowledge. They would say that that's knowledge, <laughs> but yeah, you're saying that that's a hindrance. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, of course, right. Like having background and knowledge is useful, uh, but you have to right, not be sure to not kind of over rely on your kind of past experience, especially if the data is telling you something different. Uh, so I've kind of, uh, so I've just kind of throughout this past year, just, you know, relied on, on the, on the data as much as possible. So if, right, the data tells me that, right, something is, is, is not what I expected it to be, then I just change my beliefs and, and, and go from there. Right. But I think for people who've been doing this for many years, it might, it may be difficult 
for a lot of them, right, to to kind of uh, see evidence that may go against their beliefs and then change their beliefs because they've right been so ingrained with certain kind of ideologies or doctrines. Uh, and so uh, that that kind of is something that I think could be happening. Um, so I think that's that, well. I think you're. I think you're quite right. And actually, I say I, I always tell people something very similar happens in clinical medicine, where if you're too in love with a drug or a test or a study or a procedure, you almost will always lose clarity, and and you'll you will you won't reject it even if the data suggests you ought to reject it. Okay, my last question for you. My last question for you is about herd immunity. Um, well, <laughs> which is even provocative to utter those words these days. It used to be when we started the pandemic, you could say herd immunity. Now you're a bad person. Herd immunity doesn't exist. It's a myth. Um, I'm, you know, you've done a lot of work. You're thinking about the rate with for vaccinating people, the rate with which people have already had, you know, what you call true infection. Um, I guess I would say, um, do you think, I mean, herd immunity, my understanding of herd immunity is it's not the same everywhere. It depends on the rate with which people mix and the rate with which they do, you know, different activities. I guess, how do you, what do you think about herd immunity? Is there a herd immunity threshold? Is there a percentage that you would quote? Uh, Anthony Fauci says it's 80%, 85%. He looks at the polls and then tells you what it is, <laughs> which isn't the way I like to do it. But okay, is there a percentage? Is it the same across areas? Where are we and when might we get there? So everything about herd immunity, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, herd immunity comes up uh, every so often, every few months, it yeah. seems like, because uh, right, I know back in March and April, people are talking, we should not aim for herd immunity. That's why we should, you know, stay locked down. Mm -hmm. And then kind of in June, July, August, we're saying, oh, like, are we at herd immunity? Uh, maybe we are, maybe we're not. Uh, and then, of course, now we're, we're coming back to this topic, right, of, you know, now that we have a vaccine, can we get to herd immunity? And... I mean, my, right, like my take is if you've been following, right, some of my poses, yeah, it's becoming more and more clear that we are probably not going to reach herd immunity. And the reason I say that is because you look at the polls and, you know, it turns out right, vaccine acceptance has not been increasing uh, or vaccine hesitancy has, has not been decreasing. Uh, in fact, it might be even increasing. And, you know, so it turns out that, you know, probably we're going to get about 60, 70%, right, for, for our uh, lucky of, of the adults who are going to get vaccinated. Uh, and then if you, right, so that's, it looks like ch where children probably won't even get the vaccine this year. Yeah. No, um, so, yeah. And so you factor that in, right, even if you vaccinate every single adult, you're not going to get to that 70, 80% level of the population. And then if you, once you factor in vaccine hesitancy, well, you're probably only going to get about, uh, you know, 60% maybe. And then of course the vaccine's not hundred percent effective. Uh, right. So you have like the Johnson Johnson vaccine that's right, has 70% efficacy. And then you have kind of the, the new variants that's coming around that, you know, might drop the, uh, efficacy a little bit. Uh, so, so, you know, you put all of that together and, you know, at, at the end of the day, we probably, uh, won't get to whatever that threshold is, right? 70%, 75, 80, or it doesn't matter. I, I don't think that should be our goal. Uh, I think the goal should always be, right, the, the widespread availability of a vaccine that effectively eliminates uh, severe illnesses and deaths, right? Once we get to the point where every anyone who wants a vaccine can get a vaccine, 
uh, then there, I, I don't see a reason why we can't return to normal. And I think uh, looking at the projections now, we're probably uh, just a few months from, from reaching that point, uh, probably in December. So uh, I think right, what we should focus less on kind of when we get to herd immunity and more on when everyone can get a vaccine uh, and, and, and then we can go about going, returning to our normal activities. Yeah, that's, um, I have another guest coming on the podcast, Monica Gandhi. She says something similar. She says that the moments the hospitals empty out and, uh, that she, she actually puts it quite differently. I think she just says that, um, you won't be able to contain it. Uh, norm, normalcy will just return. People will just go back to doing what they're doing because, you can't, you can't you can't even try to enforce the restrictions if people aren't concerned and, and worried. But I think you're right. Um, so I guess by this model, I mean by, not by this model, by this way of thinking, you would say that we shouldn't be surprised if in the fall there's a there's an outbreak of of COVID nineteen in communities that they have chosen not to be vaccinated. Would that be reasonable to to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think uh, right. Uh, I think the guest you had last week, right, uh, Professor Francois Ballos, he was like, yeah, like you're going to see another wave, yeah, uh, fourth wave and then a fifth wave and a sixth wave, right? You're, you're going to see those waves, but each one is going to decrease in its intensity and uh, they're not going to hopefully kind of right, like uh, have uh, get as anywhere to what we saw in the fall where we were overwhelming hospitals. So, but, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, right. People who are vaccinated, they will be very right, protected from hospitalizations and, and, and deaths. And so at that point, um, yeah, what's right. What's stopping us from going back to normal. If everyone at risk is protected from the bad outcomes, then SARS-CoV-2 is a cold. I like to tell people it's really not. Much yeah. Longer. I mean, yeah, it's basically becomes a flu, but unfortunately yeah. it seems like we can't, really say compare COVID to the flu uh, these days. So I guess we have to <laughs> be careful when, when we say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I guess I, I guess maybe I lied. Maybe I have one more question because I guess we still have a few more minutes. Um, um, I don't know. Have you been surprised a little bit by, I mean, it's just from talking to you, it seems like you're quite an even keeled person. You're a data person. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're, not, you're not getting too heated any direction. Um, but you go on Twitter and it's, it's this, you know, one of the things that gets me is, I mean, I feel like there's a group of people and they're like the fear monger Twitter and I wouldn't be so annoyed by them, except I think they have the ear of like CNN and the New York times. And it's just like fear and doom and fear and doom and, you know, and just more. And then there's no end to the restrictions that they support. Um, and they are unwilling to consider or do anything about the downsides of restrictions. I see like that's a group. And there's another group on the other end. It's not even real. It's not even real. It doesn't exist. I was like, what are you, get away. Get away. It doesn't exist. You're crazy. So I guess I wonder, I mean, you're an out, as you put it, you're an outsider, which is good because you don't have any inherent bias, um, no strong held convictions. Um, oh, and then the last thing I'd say is, and there's some, a lot of people in the middle who try to, you know, there's a big, broad middle of people. A lot of us are silent. I think a lot of people in the middle are silent because they're scared of getting, you know, pushed to one extreme or attacked. And, and then th that's the other thing I'd say is there's a lot of like attacks. I mean, personal attacks and name calling. Uh, I feel like you've kind of stayed out of most of it. Um, maybe uh, just, um, uh, personality wise. Um, I guess, um, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on the, on the state of the dialogue. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, this, it was this past year on Twitter has definitely 
been a learning experience for me. I, I wasn't even on Twitter before uh, the pandemic. And uh, yeah, I mean, I noticed that you, you right, like our dialogue is, is uh, so po uh, polarized uh, that, right, you have basically very few people kind of in the middle and you, you just have groups of people on one side or on the other extreme. And uh, for me, I guess uh, I, I take pride in, in knowing that I get attacked from uh, both sides, <laughs> uh, you know, and also right, they also uh, they also use both sides, but right? I've also used my uh, analysis and data to 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 support their <laughs> ideas, and and so I think that kind of is a good uh, sign for me that I'm kind of doing things right in the sense that right, like you know, both <laughs> both sides can find criticism in my work and also find things that they find useful. Uh, but yeah, my goal is always kind of like to just be as level-headed, uh, realistic, unbiased, unpolitical, uh, no agenda, kind of doing that analysis. And I'm happy to take <laughs> as much criticism uh, in the process as, as, as possible as what happens. <laughs> so... Yeah, I guess um, that's well put. I'm I'm close to you. I mean, I have no political agenda, and I'm happy to. I mean, even if I see a politician who I like or dislike, just because I like them, I'm not going to take it easy on them. And just because I dislike them doesn't mean if they say something true, I'm not going to agree with them. I'm going to agree with them if they say true. Um, but my biases are I do have biases because I've been in medicine for I guess 15 years now. My biases are I think um, that. People, people oversell low levels of evidence. People believe that human beings control our destiny in a very strong way that often uh, is not fully true. And I think you should always think about other things that may be leading to outcomes and randomness. I think people have a very bad job of thinking about randomness. I think mm -hmm. one of the other principles I have is um, emotional availability. Things you see being counted and scored are much more present in your mind than things you don't see, that you don't think about, you have difficulty imagining. That's why I think the school's discussion has been a fiasco because they see the deaths. They don't see the kids getting somebody putting a cigarette out on their back and you know nobody's there to, to, to stop that. They don't see that abuse. Um, so, you know, so I think that's one of the biases I have. And then I think measurement. I think that my big bias is that measurement is really awful, often awful. Um, if you don't do the same measurement in the same way uh, with the same test, with the same ability to get the test. And, you know, if you're changing that over time, as you point out, you pick deaths because it's much more, you know, that's a, that's a wisdom because it's much more stable. Even deaths, you know, there is some adjudication of death. Um, and and excess death is is another metric, which I think is reasonable. But the problem with excess death is um, it, it can get at things that are not the downstream sequela of the thing you're worried about, the virus. And I guess, so, you know, a lot of these questions on, uh, you know, I've written about these things. My honest view is like, I don't know how much lockdowns work uh, beyond, you know, the intervention. The first intervention is you go on TV and you say, shit, look at how they, look at the cases going up. Their cases going up. It's really bad. That scares people. They're going to change their behavior. Then on top of that, you lock them down. Well, what's the lockdown effect? I don't know. You have to separate that from scaring me. I mean, when I'm scared, I stay in my house. I, of course I am. I, I don't want to go out there. I mean, but I have to go to work. But, um, you know, I mean, those kinds of things. So I guess I don't know what all these things do. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say, my bias is that I do think um, human beings 
from 100,000 years ago to now, when you are scared and anxious, you slaughter a goat. By that I mean, one of the things you do is like slaughtering a goat. You slaughter the goat because you think that the, I don't know, the spirits will give you good omens and the problem will go away. We don't slaughter goats anymore. That's obviously, quote, you know, that's obviously doesn't work, but we do similar things. We take rims off basketball hoops. We rip nets out of tennis courts. We close playgrounds. The closing a thousand years from now, closing playgrounds for this disease, that's, that's slaughtering a goat. I mean, it's just not, doesn't have anything to do with anything. So I guess I would say, those are my biases, if I have biases. And, and then my last bias is I love debate. I mean, I really do like when I see people debate, and I really hate when they make it about personal things and they don't debate the content. Um, and so my bias is always pro-debate. And when I'm uncertain, I want to hear a debate. Um, and, and then I guess the last thing I'd say before I give you the final word, the last thing I'd say is like the thing that kills me the most about this modern culture is I've had some guests on my podcast with, you know, their huge range of views. I mean, a very broad range of views. I've had some guests that people say, you should not have interviewed, they say you should not have interviewed John Yonides. I was like, this dude is like the most cited researcher. And maybe, maybe um, he is not 100% right. He's a human being after all. But maybe he has something interesting to say. And he's an interesting person to talk to. I don't know. Uh, but this culture that we can't talk to people, I think, I mean, you might as well put your head in the sand. Okay. Uh, so those are my thoughts. Uh, I'll give you the final word. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, I mean, I find your threads very insightful. They make me think. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a very good uh, way to, to summarize everything. So I don't know if I can necessarily top that. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, like I learned a lot and, over the past year, especially on Twitter and kind of my take is just kind of always, um, you know, just be, be kind of critical of, of, of what's going on. I think, uh, it's important that we don't, uh, always just kind of, uh, look at what, you know, the media says and, and just kind of go along with it, uh, because it's always kind of, there's always usually some sort of, uh, agenda, uh, or bias behind it. Uh, and then, but of course, that doesn't mean that's not a mean to say you know go out and and deny COVID, right? right? So it's it's a very fine balance, yes. right, between just kind of challenging the status quo versus just outright denial, right? Uh, and right. so for me, kind of my my goal, at least right through this whole time, is to, to just kind of walk that line right. uh, as, as carefully as I can, and you know that I'm not always perfect. Uh, right, so I made mistakes too, where I stray too far on on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I try to come back whenever I I catch myself doing that, mm -hmm. and uh, I hope I hope you know more people can can kind of uh, see right that the, the work that I do and the work that you do as well, and and just say like hmm, maybe like they I, th what they're saying disagrees with my beliefs, but maybe they have a point. Right. Maybe just maybe like there, there is a reason why they're saying that uh, and to just kind of give them some some further consideration and and, uh, and you know, go from there. So, uh, you, but yeah, no, yeah. it was great. Great being on uh, being here today. And, uh, you know, hopefully this was uh, this was helpful to to the viewers who will be listening or listeners who will be listening to this. I think they're going to enjoy it. Yu Yang Gu, thank you so much for doing this. A pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Glad to be here. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. 
Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.